I think there's something happening. Excellent. Good morning, everyone. My name is Paul Woolley. I am the CEO at the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity and your chair for this panel discussion. It's really good to see so many of you in the room. I'm sorry if you don't have a chair at the back. We are trying to bring some more chairs in for you. We hope that you like the chocolate and the book on your seat, if you got one. The chocolate is a reminder of your significance to God <laughs> and the significance of your everyday front line. And the book is intended to help you navigate your way through that and work through the implications of what this looks like every day of the week in your everyday life. It is great to have you with us as we explore this significant subject, a subject that deeply resonates with our lives and the world we inhabit today, the F factor, the role of forgiveness in the mucky world of politics, media and the world of work. In a world that is often characterised by conflict, polarisation and division, the concept of forgiveness, as we've heard this morning, emerges as a powerful force that can shape our lives and the way we live together. Joining me on the panel, uh, to my far right, uh, no indication of his political affiliations, of course, Mark Green, mission champion at LICC, a colleague and a friend of mine, which of course makes him well qualified to speak on the subject of forgiveness. <laughs> Mark is a best-selling author and speaker who has spent most of his adult life exploring the integration of the Christian faith with work and culture. He used to work in advertising, so you can believe every word that he says. <laughs> Baroness Philippa Stroud, to my left, is founder and CEO of the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, whose extensive experience in public policy and social reform has equipped her with a unique perspective on forgiveness in the political and social spheres. Jonathan Aitken, to my immediate right, is a well-known figure, both in politics and journalism, a former cabinet minister. His personal journey of redemption and forgiveness has granted him a unique perspective on the transformative power of forgiveness in the public sphere. Incidentally, his book on Nixon is, in my view, one of, if not the best biographies on that uh, fascinating president. And last but by no means least, Tim Farron, on my far left. He is a respected, <laughs> respected member of Parliament, former leader of the Liberal Democrats. He brings his first-hand experience of the political arena. His insights will shed light on the intricate dynamics between forgiveness, accountability and the pursuit of a just and reconciled society. He is author of A Mucky Business, why Christians should get involved in politics. He also hosts a podcast of the same name. Friends, our hope is that this gathering will inspire us to reflect on our roles and responsibilities, whether or not we're in the public eye, and empower us to embody forgiveness in our everyday contexts. Friends, would you please give a very warm welcome to the panel. Good morning, Mark. Starting with you, 
can you define forgiveness for us? How would you define forgiveness from the perspective of the New Testament? And how is that different or not to the way forgiveness is understood in contemporary culture? How long is this uh, seminar? <laughs> 30 seconds on this one. I think uh, forgiveness uh, for me needs to be set within the context of God's a yearning determination for, if you like, relational health, for relational harmony, the peace between God and us, and the peace between us and one another, and if you like, the reconciliation of the, the whole universe. So that's his goal. That's what he's looking for, and forgiveness, if you like, is the mechanism <coughs> where justice and mercy meet. And I think uh, the reason why forgiveness is a command not a suggestion, is because it reflects that goal. God says, you know, forgive others if you want to get forgiven by me. And in, in the Lord's Prayer, if you like, the only, the only thing, the immediate gloss on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 5, let me, just, let me do something daring and read the Bible here. Um, if I can find it. Well, I can't. Uh, <laughs> Mainly because it's in red and my, my glasses aren't powerful enough to, to actually read it out. But essentially, as you know, what it says is, if you don't forgive other people, I will not forgive you. And why is that? Because God's goal is relational wholeness. And because actually, if we do not, if we are unable to forgive other people, God's actual, uh, Jesus' point is, if you can't forgive other people, you haven't really understood how much you've been forgiven. And that's where you get, if you like, the, the parable of the unmerciful servant, where the unmerciful servant has been forgiven a humongous debt out of all computation. Even Elon Musk would struggle to make, have made that much money and will not forgive a minuscule amount of, uh, of, of debt of the person who owes him something. So we are, if you like, that person who owes God this humongous debt. And so if we can't forgive other people, we really haven't understood the gospel. That's why, if you like, for forgiving people is tied to salvation. And of course, and one of the reasons for that really, again, is because he wants this, he wants wholeness between people. You can't really have harmonious marriage without forgiveness. We're not going to have harmonious inter interracial relationships without forgiveness. We're not going to have intergenerational harmony without forgiveness. We're certainly not going to have international harmony without forgiveness. So it is, it is the central tenet, really, the me central mechanism of, of the gospel. And obviously, at one level, forgiveness is, is, is what Jesus dies to bring, as we heard from Amy. So how that differs from contemporary culture? Well, apart from the God bit, uh, the sin bit... Um, I'd say that you, when we look at contemporary culture, it's important to, if you like, divide it, divide it up slightly. I mean, here that we're looking at public life, so we're looking at issues of causes and ideology. And around causes and ideology, you could argue that forgiveness, and, and Amy's obviously uh, looked at that well, um, you can look at vindictive, you can, vindictiveness, you can look at um, the assumption of malice and the impossibility of personal change or redemption for the individual. If you look at it in the arts, then you know, we're all Ted Lasso fans and forgiveness abounds and lots of the arts actually have quite a lot of material about healthy forgiveness. 
And if you like, not just what you call therapeutic forgiveness, forgive because it's good for you, but rather the forgiveness that Jesus requires, which is forgive because it's good for the other person, which is again why you know, Jesus says, go find the person. Even if you're actually at church with a huge gift for LICC, which you're about to lay at the altar, no, 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 stop. If somebody's got something against you, even if what they've got against you is wrong, go and make it right. So in biblical forgiveness is, is two-way. We, we, we seek relational health is the key, regardless of who's wronging who. That's our goal. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, workplaces can be challenging environments. You used to work in advertising. I had a stint in politics. How does what you've described relate to those worlds? In other words, what could forgiveness look like in the world of work? Well, the world of work, um, if you like, let's, let's take ordinary work rather than the work that many of you do here. Um, it's, you know, there's, there's good and bad, there's extraordinary. And one person I did a Facebook inquiry about this and got loads and loads of people talking about things that had happened to them at work and the power of forgiveness in it and the, power, and the difficulty of it. There is the jostling, one person called it the Game of Thrones jostling for position, people being thrown under the bus. There is just uh, indifference that many people feel. You don't care about what I do. Um, there are slights. 70% uh, of people leave their bosses not their jobs, so there's a relational issue there, and so on. So in the world of work, it's extraordinarily um, difficult, but extraordinarily powerful to extend forgiveness. And it's also extraordinarily powerful to say sorry. Um, saying sorry in the world of work, I think, is subversive and startling. And in terms of Christian testimony, uh, remarkably, I mean, you don't do it for this reason, but it is remarkably powerful. But it's also a risk. Mm. I was very struck by Amy's line that forgiveness is not about forgetting, but appropriate remembering. And I think you've spoken right into that space just now. Jonathan, if I could turn to you, please. Um, as someone who is a public figure, was a cabinet minister, what's your experience both of giving and receiving forgiveness? Well, I think I've been um, very fortunate in receiving forgiveness. I've often tried to give forgiveness, sometimes succeeded, sometimes failed. Uh, but I'll tell you a little story of my prison days, which may illuminate something. Um, I'd been uh, having pleaded guilty almost exactly 24 years ago at the Old Bailey on, I think, June the 24th, 1999. I was about 18 years, days later in Belmarsh Prison <coughs> and thought I was doing quite well. I was getting on with my uh, fellow uh, inmates on the wing and then I went into the exercise yard on a Sunday morning and a character I got to know and still do know and like then rejoicing in the name of Razor Smith um, <laughs> <laughs> handed me a copy I think of the Daily Mirror and said oh Jono you're in the newspapers again and the headlines right across huge records said Smelly Aitken or Stinker Aitken, too scared to come out of his cell. And the story was that I was so um, uh, vilified by my fellow <coughs> prisoners, so much regarded as a pariah that I didn't dare come out of my cell and cringed away, didn't even go to the showers 
and was therefore nicknamed Smelly Aitken. <laughs> this, like many things, the tabloids was a complete fiction. I was actually almost thinking it was going quite well. So I was, but I was disproportionately angry and upset by this uh, article, particularly as it had been written by a journalist who I thought had been sticking unfair pins into me for some time and was now sticking even more unfair pins. And so I got very, very angry and sort of smoke was coming out of my nostrils and my... And suddenly the Hove interview, um, the kind of character who shows up in prisons, a kind of chaplaincy volunteers, and he was a monk. And he looked the most incongruous figure on that June day with great brown habit and sweat pouring out of him. And he came up to me and sort of said something like, I'm getting on all right. And instead of saying, yes, Father, I gave him both barrels of all my anger, which was completely unforgiving anger. It was furious, but how unfair this headline was, how unfair the journalist was, and huge, um, <coughs> disgracefully unforgiving anger. After we'd done about a circuit of the exercise yard, he <coughs> said to me, well, as a matter of fact, we all read the story in the chaplaincy this morning. We know it's untrue. Um, so we do. I completely sympathise with you. And I went on saying, so I know I'm trying to get along in my Christian faith. I know <coughs> I should be forgiving um, anybody who's been unfair or unkind. But I just can't do it. I'm just giving up on this. I was so sort of angry and unforgiving. And this monk said something very surprising. He said, um, as a matter of fact, he said, I, I completely agree with you. You shouldn't be forgiving. Can't be forgiving. And then he went on, he said, you know, I, before I became a monk, I was a parish priest up in North Yorkshire. And every so often I used to be, find myself in a pastoral situation, something like a, uh, I don't even remember a case when the husband had run off with a bridesmaid on the night of the wedding, this kind of thing. <laughs> and you know, the bride couldn't forgive this uh, the fellow bridesmaid. And he said, I can't say, you know, come on, be a good Christian, forgive. It's just impossible. Uh, and he said, now I give you a tip, and I personally I've never read it anywhere else, no theological book, no sermon. He said, you can't very often forgive somebody quickly. What you should do, he said, is accept <coughs> your human failing of being able to offer forgiveness quickly. What you should do is go away and pray for the gift of forgiveness. Uh, not necessarily in reference to this article, this journalist, just pray for the gift of forgiveness and you will find that you will get it and you will be able to use it. I think it's a wonderful piece of uh, spiritual advice, which certainly worked for me not only then, it doesn't happen just like that, but I think um, in public life, uh, in all life, there are often situations where it's too soon, too difficult right now to instantly forgive. And Amy challenges very much how to forgive without um, doing harm, without uh, it, these are big challenges. And I think that scriptural reference Mark was uncharacteristic searching for is actually the 34th word of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And just keep bear in mind that God wants us to forgive so that he can forgive mm. us. Mm. It's not a... Anyway. Thank you, Jonathan, so much. Uh, Baroness Stroud, Philippa, you've not been in the Old Bailey, well, not as a defendant, um, <laughs> or in Belmarsh Prison, certainly not as a convict. 
What's your experience, though, presumably different from Jonathan's, but of forgiveness, both receiving and giving it, within your working life to date? Yeah. Um, thank, thank you, Paul. And um, I was wondering where you were going with your comments about Belmarsh uh, Prison then. And I was thinking, I don't recollect that being in my bio, but um, uh, I think just, just to back up uh, before, I, before I answer that question, um, uh, you asked Mark about uh, the concept of forgiveness in the public square. And often when I'm thinking about a role that a particular virtue or attribute plays, I think about what society would be like if you removed it entirely from it. Because then I think you see really clearly our heritage as, as a nation, the fact that if you remove the concept of forgiveness or the possibility of forgiveness from our personal lives, our family life, from, from the workplace, there is no way back. There is no way of of bringing relationships back together again. As Tom Holland puts it, we are in effect back in Rome, uh, where the death penalty for everything is in effect what, what is required. And um, I, uh, I often um, think, working in this place, <clears throat> how important uh, the power of forgiveness is because when you are working on an issue that's really precious to you and you are battling for it on the floor of the house because you profoundly believe that it is the right thing to do, when you cannot uh, persuade either government colleagues or your opponents that this is the right way forward, but you need to remain on the front line and arguing for these things, unless you walk in a pathway of forgiveness, then there is no way of bridge building across divide, which is so important for politics. Politics is a game of numbers. If you don't have numbers behind an issue, you cannot win it. In order to, in order to fight for something that you profoundly believe is right, you have to team with people of different views. And at times they come with you, and at times they don't. If you don't keep forgiving along the way and being grace-filled along the way, we cannot build the vital coalitions for the change that we long to see happen in this nation. So for me, just being somebody who, who seeks to bridge-build across party divides or coalitions even within my own party, the power of forgiveness and of grace and of going the extra mile and continuing to invest in relationships is absolutely critical. Brilliant, thank you. Um, Tim, um, politics can seem like an unforgiving trade at times. And um, perhaps this is a, a wrong perspective, but I think often our sense is that, especially within a social media age, the divisions that exist within politics are, are heightened, they're amplified. Um, what is your experience of, of both giving and receiving <coughs> forgiveness in politics, um, not least as, as leader of a political party? What was that like? Well, so I think the first thing to say is that when we consider what is a, what's the role of a Christian in politics, uh, we will come to different conclusions. I think that's perfectly legitimate. I think what absolutely should mark us out, and we all fail at it, I certainly do, is the manner in which we treat one another. 
And, and that means, you know, treating people with kindness. It means uh, being people who are responding with grace because we are recipients of grace. Uh, but it doesn't mean being soppily neutral. You know, stuff that's wrong is still wrong. And I thought Amy characterised that beautifully uh, just downstairs. That what the possibility of forgiveness tells us is there is something to forgive. And by the way, you don't get to decide what are the things that need forgiving. God decides. Mm, yeah. Don't tell him what it is you do and don't need forgiving for. So let's just, I, I suppose, you know, so we start from a position of humility. You are a, you are a, a, a fallen uh, sinner, and if you're a Christian, you are saved by grace. One of the most useful things, I don't, so I've fouled up umpteen times, in this sort of area where you lose your rag, where you say the wrong thing, where you've been a poor witness, um, uh, and maybe even catastrophically so. I remember next door um, is my pastor, Paul, um, and so I'm not going to shame him or embarrass him um, uh, in his presence just next door as he listens to, because he thought whoever's in the other panel is more interested than we are, but there you go. But at my lowest point when I was leader, and I dropped a clanger or two, and, and he said to me, look, the thing to remember as a Christian is this. Um, sin spoils our relationship with God, but it doesn't end it. But it doesn't end it. Which is amazing. And so you, and I, you, know, you saw the joy on the face of those predominantly young people, all of them younger than me, singing at the front about amazing grace. Because if you get grace, it's flipping amazing. Yes. Uh, what it is, you have been forgiven. And how dare you then withhold it from others. And I need to remind you <coughs> that regularly. And one of the blessings of being in, in fellowship with other Christians in Parliament, there are people on the other side of the house who I disagree with profoundly, and I might feel really wound up about something. And then I'll see... Um, well, I'll name people like Danny Kruger or Miriam Cates or somebody with my brother or sister in Christ with whom I disagree on that particular issue. And I'm just reminded, hang about, hang about, that's God's way of reminding me I'm a sinner too. And I might be cross about this issue and, it might be, and I might be right and I might not be right. But um, I, am a, I am a sinner also forgiven by grace. And how I model, it doesn't, the Bible tells us in our anger, do not sin. It doesn't say don't be angry. We have to model it in the right way. I mean, in footballing parlance, you, you know, you play the ball and not the player. Um, but I, so I think that for me, it is, it is just remembering um, that I am a sinner saved only by grace. Um, and so the, the difficulty, I think we're, we're tempted, aren't we? We're, we're either Pharisees or prodigals, aren't we? Um, tempted, just we know everything. Um, uh, we're, we're right, those people are in the wrong. Or people who, on the other hand, where people who think there are no rules, you know, uh, stuff a lot of it. And, um, and of course we know um, that in the story of the prodigal that the prodigal comes to his senses and our, and our job is just to hold out the gospel to enable, enable people to come to their senses. Mm. Brilliant. Can I just um, give a couple of follow-throughs, Tim, on that? I suppose the first reflection would be that when you talk about your interactions with people like Danny or Miriam, um, the sense I have is if the public saw more of that displayed that would increase the appetite for politics, interest in politics, and sort of humanise politics. Um, why don't you think the uh, public see more of that? Is that down to the public, or is that something that the politicians could do better? And then the quick follow-through, which is um, you know, kind of challenging, is you've been very open, transparent, generous about where you feel you have needed to seek forgiveness. But equally, as the leader of a team... Presumably, there were points where members of your team made some 
catastrophic mistakes that were deeply unhelpful and you had to respond in some way. How did you seek to do that distinctively, would you say? Well, I probably did it very badly, but I mean, I, I, with most things, we're, we were really good at the thing that we used to do because we've done it. Um, and I think that, so I think the, what you do learn about leadership um, is that uh, we have it wrong in our culture, uh, that leadership is a thing we aspire to do because that's the way of being the best in our field. Reality is that genuinely effective good leadership is always servant leadership. Uh, you're not first among equals, you're least among equals. Uh, you're the one who enables other people to succeed, and yet doesn't mean you, you haven't got to be tough sometimes to remove people, discipline people, but essentially you're there to enable people to do to do well. And, and your example, obviously, is Christ, despite being uh, the greatest of all, made himself the least of all, so others um, could enter in. Um, I think the other thing about the... So Christians in Parliament is a kind of fellowship organisation. We're quite sort of cellular. Um, so I meet with a, a group of, you know, between half a dozen and a dozen uh, people on a, uh, normally on a Wednesday morning, and, uh, and it, it's, a, it's a great encouragement. We're not, we don't hide the fact that we meet together at all. I organised in, we organised in January, uh, something we grandly called a symposium, um, uh, either side, basically an internet chat, um, on either side of the uh, Atlantic. Um, with a gentleman many of you will know called Michael Weir. Uh, Michael Weir, if I could put it um, slightly flippantly, is this uh, amazing creature. He is a white evangelical Democrat. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and he was a violent faith advisor. And we were talking about the people we might invite to this symposium, and I was talking about uh, being able to bring along or invite along Stephen Timms, Rachel Maskell from the Labour Party, uh, Danny Miriam from the Conservatives and, and others as well, um, uh, potentially Kate from the SNP, a variety of people. And he, he said, wow, I can't do, I can't match you with that. I will, there will be people within Congress who share uh, a theology on either side of the aisle. The thought that I could confess that in public and it not be career suicide, we haven't got there at this stage. So I simply say that, not to make you go, is it orphan America? I do worry sometimes about this slightly bogus narrative, I think it is, about persecution of Christians in the UK. We're not. Um, and, and it's meant to be tough to be a Christian. In, in this world, you will have trouble. We're promised it. Rejoice, turn the other cheek, um, don't whine about it. Um, but, 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 also, but also celebrate some of the things that are good. We have a politics where there are people who are Bible believing Christians who take wildly different views, left, right, pro and anti independence in Scotland, pro and anti Brexit, all the rest of it, and who are faithfully following Christ and can say so publicly. There's lots wrong, there's so many things that are good too. Amazing, thank you, Tim. I was at the symposium and it was amazing. It was life-giving. Um, it was, um, yeah, redemptive in lots of ways. Philippa, you've been in numerous different contexts. On the one hand, with Jackie Pullinger in China, and now you're in the House of Lords. Very contrasting context. Um, the question that I've got is, is really picking up on a, a thread that, that Tim started, which is this, the whole relationship between forgiveness and repentance and accountability uh, how, how do you see that relationship working? How do they relate to each other, those things? Yeah. Um, thank, thank you, Paul. I think one of the things um, that struck me um, about working with Jackie Pullinger, I wouldn't have started there if you hadn't name-checked it, but um, as you did, um, is that the power for transformation of a life lies in 
the act of repentance and taking responsibility. And then as you take responsibility, asking for forgiveness for the things that I am responsible for and giving forgiveness to the party who did damage. So in the life of a drug addict, for example, much damage has often been done and giving forgiveness to the party who committed that damage. What I saw time and time again was that people would, would willingly take responsibility for things that they were not responsible for, but found it very, very difficult to take responsibility for the things that they were responsible for. But that the genuine pathway for personal life transformation <coughs> came through that pathway of repentance, forgiveness, and the taking of responsibility. And I've come to the conclusion that actually a national transformation happens in a very, in a very similar way. That actually for change to happen in a nation, it has to be as we identify the problem that needs to be addressed and we take responsibility for it. And we, um, and we reverse the things, which is the act of repentance, that cause damage and breakdown in a nation. And uh, those dynamics work on an individual level, a family level, a community level, and a, and a, national, and a national level. And um, people think that kind of national change is, is, is very, very complex. But I think if you understand how change happens in an individual person, you can see how the power of transformation can happen in a nation as well, through that pathway of forgiveness and repentance and um, the taking of responsibility. And um, yeah, I don't know whether that answers, mm. answers your, your question at all, but uh, I've, I've seen people really try to complicate this process, and I don't think it is that, that complicated. It's very, very hard to do. Anybody who has tried to uh, negotiate with a teenage daughter who's angry with them uh, knows that um, it takes two to come back together, that the restoration of relationship takes place as both come together. Forgiveness can be a one-sided Forgiveness can be one-sided. It can be whether the person wants forgiveness or not. You can release yourself from that by forgiving. Mm. Restoration is a two-way process as both parties come back together again. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you. One group of people, incidentally, as you were speaking, that I was thinking of, that I've been spending a bit of time recently with over the last couple of years, are those that have come through Alcoholics Anonymous within the context of our church. And um, the most extraordinary thing has been I've discovered this group of people, possibly more than any other group within the church, understand this connection. Um, and also it strikes me as extraordinary that this is the group of people who are most likely to invite people into church and also to do Alpha, which is an extraordinary thing. So the most significant evangelists within our church community are those that have been through Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think it's because they get this connection. But this is this is entirely Isaiah sixty one. If you if you know that, that that passage, that it's the poor once set free, once restored, once um, they come out of dark prisons, they're the ones who rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. This is this is why this whole process is so important, and why we cannot do this 
as middle class Christians, why we are absolutely dependent on doing this across the whole of society. Mm-hmm. It's, it's crucial. Yeah, brilliant. Jonathan, um, on the subject of dark prisons, um, <laughs> tell me, what was your experience um, of, of, of being found guilty and going to prison in terms of the way that your, your former co- um, cabinet colleagues and friends related to you um, did you find that suddenly those that had been close um, weren't there anymore? Um, were there people that suddenly were, were alongside you who hitherto hadn't been? What was that experience like? And, and, and how did you respond to that in terms of needing to, to give and receive forgiveness? The picture was quite complex. Um, Shakespeare has a phrase about... Um, those friends thou hast and their adoption tried, grapple them to thy soul with hoops of steel. And we all have a hoops of steel club of friends. We perhaps can count them on the fingers of one or most two hands. And in that respect, I was very fortunate. My hoops of steel club friends may have been very critical of me, but they certainly were, um, but they didn't desert. They were always there. Um, wider sort of picture was complicated. Some people I thought were very friendly acquaintances turned out to take for the hills. Um, <coughs> others who I thought were rather distant, um, rather vague acquaintances, particularly incidentally Christian acquaintances, came thundering in like the sort of the cavalry to the rescue and to come alongside me. So, but on the whole, I was. Uh, much more grateful than um, in any way critical of people who who left. I think um, one of the best things about the Christian world is its willingness to forgive, willingness to come alongside to brothers and sisters who they see in trouble. Um, And that is a marvelous world to suddenly become part of and to realize how generous it is if I could strike a critical note about today's proceedings generally, um, the headline of the event is, I think, the power of forgiveness in politics, media, and public life. Actually, if you get away from the Christian world, I think it should be called the weakness of uh, <coughs> forgiveness in politics, media, and public life. The media, in particular, are brutally <coughs> unforgiving uh, to many, many people. Um, I now work as a prison chaplain, and I'm often asked uh, by people who only had sort of, as far as I can make out, three lines in the Potterby on the Marsh echo. Uh, they say, well, I have to be forgiven after that terrible publicity I've had, and uh, shaken to the core. Uh, and um, I can give them some encouragement. <laughs> but... Um, the fact of the matter is the secular world is, on the whole, unforgiving. And it's therefore a wonderful piece of unique Christian territory that we stake out and are willing to forgive. And how good we are at that, of course, really very deep in the secrets of our hearts. I thought Amy had some wonderfully profound things to say today about um, how to forgive and not to forget and so on. And so uh, it was a great speech, I thought. Thank you. Um, Tim, let me run a little hypothesis by you, which is that it, it seems to me that 
in some ways, uh, people find it easier to say sorry today in the public space, in the media space, um, in the celebrity space. Um, I'm sorry I fessed up. Um, you know, I, I kind of didn't realise what I was doing. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I, I can't take the, uh, you're, you're for, the, a former leader of your party, there was that big thing, wasn't there, around education fees and then his, him saying sorry, it was paid to music. But it kind of captured maybe something um, of, the, of the moment. So on the one hand, it being kind of easier to say sorry and people doing that a lot and they're sometimes being questioned as to whether that's real or whether it's contrived, whether it's a pretense. And then at the same time, I, I sometimes wonder whether uh, people find it more difficult or there's less of a willingness for people to be forgiving mm. of others. Um, do you think that analysis is yeah. remotely accurate? Obviously, the problem I have with that, Nick, is I, I strived as a teenager to, you know, in a band to make it and failed miserably. He ends up in the top ten uh, as a consequence of the music being put to the I'm sorry video. Um, but, uh, but I think the... Um, so all of this... Yes, I, mean, I, I think that the, obviously when you, um, when you talk to people, and there are many professionals, maybe even some in the room, uh, whose job it is to help people through you know, crisis comms, and uh, there seem to be two, two ways of dealing with a kind of scandal or a crisis. One is you just hope that the relentless cycle of news will just drown it all out, and if you stand your ground for five days, everyone will get you know, outrage, fatigue, and it's all over, and you get away with it. Um, and the other is to make a kind of calculated sorry. Um, now, I'm very cynical about both of those things because, but so it, it often is used as a tactic. Um, it doesn't mean, and the problem is that when you are um, in the glare of the of the cameras and all the rest of it, have you actually had time to really contemplate what it is you've done wrong, and who you've offended, and and so the the so it's not that there aren't. Um, People are running from the Pharisees rather than running to Jesus. I think that's what it kind of feels like uh, to me. The, the account of Jesus healing the paralysed man who, with, with, with his epic mates who got him up onto the, uh, onto the and broke, broke this person's roof to get him down. I mean, what do you want mates like that? There you go, to steal mates. Um, uh, and, but, you know, so what, does, uh, what is the outrageous thing that Jesus says? He forgives this person his sins. That's not what I've come here for. Um, so obviously it was offensive to that man. What were you saying? I've sinned. And then, but the, what was offensive to the people around Jesus um, uh, was that this was Jesus forgiving somebody for stuff that he'd apparently not done to Jesus. And here's the thing, isn't it? Because if we are sorry, we're sorry to the person and the people we've actually harmed. And if we forgive people, we forgive people who've harmed us. And, and that's where I think we have it wrong. So if I say sorry uh, in a public space, who am I saying sorry to? Am I saying sorry to people who, are, who, who didn't like the thing I said? Or am I saying sorry to the God I've offended against or the people that I've injured? You know, so who, to whom am I repentant? And, uh, and so I think that there is still uh, a narrative of, of people apologizing and seeking forgiveness is good, but what is it they're trying to save? It's their careers. Which I totally understand, by the way. Being there, completely understand that. But I think the the, 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 the narrative of apology and repentance and forgiveness in the public square is often about saying sorry for the wrong things to the wrong people, mm. for the wrong reasons. Interesting. Thank you. Mark, it's easier to believe in a God who forgives 
if you've seen followers of Jesus forgiving others and receiving forgiveness, forgiving one another? Is it not? Have you got some examples of how that worked out in your own working life where you, where you had to both give and receive forgiveness? Uh, yeah, so um, um, it's New York City. It's uh, an evening. It's the Upper East Side in a shishi Man- Manhattan Italian restaurant. And we've gone to celebrate my boss's at the time's 40th uh, birthday. There's 25 people there. I've bought the cake. Uh, we say, well done to people who've got been promoted, um, uh, cheerio to some people moving on, and uh, then the cake goes round and uh, suddenly there's my boss and his number two are standing over me, lots of banter and all this kind of stuff, with two plates each of cake, and suddenly there's cake all over me, and I am out of my seat uh, like a jack-in-the-box, and as I come up from my seat, I push my boss in this sophisticated Shishi Manhattan restaurant um, in front of 25 of his Uh, subordinates on his 40th birthday across the room he falls over a table the table goes over glasses go over cutlery chairs and men in double-breasted suits suddenly appear from nowhere and uh, the Christian at work (laughs) and um, yeah so uh, how do you come back from that I mean I think today that would have been career suicide Um, anyway the following day, I go into uh, to work early because he always got into to work early, and the reality was he had not put any cake on me. That's the irony. It was the other guy, um, but I didn't know that. I was just out of my seat, um, and um, so I apologised to him unreservedly and unconditionally. And he said, "He's not a Christian man." He said, "Apology accepted." And end of story. And his was the most astonishing act of forgiveness I have ever received, because it was. It was the end. Um, Tim Keller, in his book, um, Forgive, talks about how do you know somebody's forgiven you, or how do you know you've forgiven somebody, because they don't gossip about you to other people afterwards. They don't rubbish your reputation, um, would be one thing, because they, they don't bring it up to you. And also, obviously, ultimately, they don't bring it up to themselves. I don't know about that, but the other two. So I, this is, this is not an advert for me, but he, I was, I think, the youngest vice president of Ogilvy Mather, New York, ever. And he promoted me mm-hmm. after that. <laughs> and when he left the agency, twice more, he in, invited me to join him in other companies that he was in. So it was completely clean. And there were jokes wandering around the, you know, Ogilvy and Mather. He was a much bigger man than me. You know, Max Bissett is a push- pushover and all this kind of stuff. Um, it, was, it was not easy for him, but it was extraordinary. So yes, I have definitely received forgiveness. And I think, I think for me that was extraordinary because it was not a Christian person. And he was able to set aside all ego, um, all humiliation, and just go, that's it. Um, I suppose that a couple of examples that I, I want to talk about. One is um, a story of a young woman-ish, uh, 34, uh, young by my standards anyway, and uh, she was in charge of a school, and one day a, a young boy um, has been, who's habitually, habitually wrong, this is in East Glasgow, um, 
Caledonia Road, East Caledonia Road Primary School, and this guy has been behaving really badly uh, historically, but he's then accused of something in the play playground um, by uh, a member of staff. And he says, in a Scottish accent, which I'm no longer allowed to do for politically correct reasons, which is really, because my Go Scottish accent is terrible. Go um, on. I didn't do it, I didn't do it. <laughs> anyway, Maybe not. and then another person comes along and says, you did it, and another staff member, and a third one, and then he loses it, and he runs off into the field, and the, the headmistress, the head, uh, Shona Allen is her name, was called, and she goes out into the field, there's a lesson right there, she goes out into the field to the child, she talks to this little boy who's habitually naughty, and she comes back and she tells the three members of staff that he did not do it. Mm. Mm -hmm. And they go and apologise to that child. Mm. And the following day, the boy who did do it came to the head and told her, and he went and apologised to the child. Now, for me, this was astonishing, I mean, absolutely astonishing. So I asked Shona, and I, I visited the school, I asked her, you know, how did this happen? She said, when I arrived at the school, I said to the staff, I said to the teachers, um, and I said to the parents, and I said to the children, I'm going to make decisions, and I'll make mistakes. And if you think I've made a mistake, come to me, and if I agree with you, I will apologise and seek to make it right. What she had created was a forgiveness the mm. culture, permission to say sorry. Mm. Extraordinary. And the other story, a shorter one, is a guy called Nick Cuthbert, and he was in purchasing, and Nick, um, he, had a, he had a view, it was called the, you know, the 21 day rule, really, which was essentially, if you tell me you're going to deliver, deliver, I, I am not giving you 21 days afterwards. The day is the day. If you can't, that's fine. I won't, not, I won't never come back to you for business, but the day is the day. And of course, suppliers didn't believe it, but he would call them up the night before and say, is it ready? And so on and so forth. And go and get it. And Oh, it's ready. Yes, well, I'll come to the factory then. <laughs> um, so he got this reputation. And then one day, um, he, is, he is late for something with his boss. And he goes into his boss's office on Monday and says, I'm sorry, I'm going to be late with this. I've... I've mistimed things. Um, I'm really sorry because I promised it to you today, um, but I can have it to you by Wednesday. Is that okay? And his boss fell, falls off his chair. Not pushed this time. He just falls off his chair. <laughs> because he can't believe this guy has apologised. Because he's, the point is he held himself to his own standard. Mm. And it was dynamite in that place, you know, the apology. And I think that's what I would say. The apology, appropriate apology, is dynamite. It was a proactive taking my word seriously. I mean, there are hundreds of examples of this, but mm -hmm. those are three. Thank Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Philippa, I've been thinking recently about the idea of Sabbath and what a subversive idea that is within our contemporary culture, especially. I wonder, and have wondered through the course of this conversation, whether forgiveness similarly is a subversive idea. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that's true or not? I think it's a totally subversive idea, and I think it is the idea that our generation is longing for and is grappling to find, particularly in the public square and the public debate. You, you see the, all the online mobbings and um, the impact that that is having on the ability to have the free exchange of our ideas, which is so crucial for societies to advance and progress uh, without, without an environment. So that teacher created an environment where 
it was safe to have that free exchange because people were not viewed as disposable if they got it wrong. And uh, it's that, it's that if, we, if you get something wrong, the fact that you're viewed as, as disposable that is, that is so, so damaging. Um, but just picking up also on a point that came out of your discussion uh, with, with Tim in terms of the I'm, the I'm sorry, I think where society gets cynical on this is that biblical forgiveness leads to a complete reversal of the action. It doesn't just lead to a statement saying, I am sorry. So, you know, when we were, when we were teaching our children to say sorry to one another, sorry also meant putting right or reversing the words that had been said that were damaging or destructive or doing something that clearly demonstrated that you were now walking in an opposite direction. And um, I think it's quite easy for people to come out and say, I'm sorry, about, say, a public policy position. But then a life well lived is about reversing that and becoming the fighter for and on behalf of what was done that was that was wrong, and I think that bit sometimes is missing in this in this conversation. Brilliant, thank you, um, Tim and Jonathan. I want to come to you in a moment um, to get from you two little bits of advice, lessons learned from your life, in terms of giving and receiving forgiveness. But I wonder if there's anyone in the audience who has a question, um, a pithy question would be really good, um, or a, a pithy comment if you have one. Have a, yes, the gentleman at the front, if you just speak up and I'll try and relate that. Okay, sorry. Um, thank you all. But I was particularly struck by something Jonathan said, which was that forgiveness may take time. And I've been thinking about that in relation to some of the kind of macro global issues around us, particularly the war in Ukraine and struck by how much in our churches, and indeed this morning, we pray for peace in Ukraine, but we very rarely pray for Russia and for forgiveness and so on. And it, it came to me perhaps in a fresh way that we're not ready to pray for forgiveness because there isn't yet peace. So I wonder if, if, if you feel that's an accurate assessment or, or whether that's um, fudging it. Thank you. I think we heard that, yeah. I think forgiveness is often difficult, and that's part of its challenge. Forgiveness is not subversive. It really is the crown jewel of the Christian faith, if you can forgive. But don't let's pretend that it can be done just like that. Don't let's pretend that it doesn't need often a great deal of prayer and needs a great deal of... I think sometimes support work from other Christians helping us to forgive. But it's, it's the biggest challenge of our faith, as well as the biggest gift of our faith. And no one should pretend that it's quickly and simply easy. Mm. Thank you. And yes, Agnes. Yeah. So Agnes, the ambassador of South Sudan. So building upon what my colleague here brought up about Ukraine and Russia, looking at the both sides, so with the experience of South Sudan, you know South Sudan emerged out of conflict from the Republic of Sudan, and now Sudan is going through uh, uh, unprecedented crisis. 
and refugees and uh, returnees are fleeing from Sudan to the Republic, to the new state of the Republic of South Sudan. So given that we were persecuted for political differences, religion, and you know, ethnicity, and so on, so now we are taking them in with grace and doing it the other side that although they mistreated us, we have to show them forgiveness. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Agnes. Thank you. And then I think a final one at the very back. Yes. Uh, is the world of safeguarding beyond the reach of the world of forgiveness? I think we sense your pain. Um, Tim, why don't you kick off with that? Well, I mean, so justice matters. Uh, even forgiven sins have consequences. And we are to be there to protect the vulnerable. All those things tell us that uh, safeguarding and forgiveness are things that can both happen. There is nothing unforgivable. That's the most shocking thing, isn't it? Mm. Uh, in the Bible, the most, I mean, when we hear the tales, um, and I often don't want to hear it, but you, you know about Jonah, obviously, running away from Nineveh. I don't know much about Nineveh, but he clearly didn't think much of those people. They were not worthy of forgiveness. We hear of those people who came to faith, a, 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 a clear um, saving faith in Christ, during the Nuremberg trials, when they'd done what they'd done, does not our blood boil a little bit? How, how can God's mercy reach those people? So forgiveness is available to everyone. The thief on the cross, all those people I've just alluded to. And at the same time, there must be justice. And forgiven, even forgiven sin, all sin, will have consequences. And it is not for us. You know, so like we said earlier on, you know, um, we forgive those who have done wrong to us. Do we forgive those uh, on behalf of those who've been sinned against? That's, that's tricky, isn't it? And, uh, and, and so, no, our fundamental objective is to protect the vulnerable, protect the weak, and those who have been victims of whatever kind of abuse. So, and, and often the church, I think, if I'm being generous to the church, have made the failings that they have, scandalous, appalling failings they have, because of a wrong-headed notion of how forgiveness and safeguarding work together. That's and being generous. Philippa, within the context of Hong Kong, I mean, you, you must have had similar wrestles Yes, complete, completely. Um, it was interesting what we've been talking about, though, in terms of um, uh, like the choice to forgive at a moment and then an ongoing state of forgiveness. I actually think that um, we're called to walk a pathway, an attitude of forgiveness, rather than just it be a momentary um, kind of decision of the will in a particular situation. It, it is part of forgiveness is part of the walk of grace and it is part of how we walk through a day it is part of 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 how we engage in the battles that we engage with to see good happen in, in the world it is what enables us to stay on the front line and not be damaged by by things that happen so um I, I see it more of a state of being, an attitude of life, than a kind of one-off um, event. Thank you, Philippa. Jonathan, in the final minutes, your two pieces of advice, lessons learned from your life on forgiving and receiving forgiveness. I think the story I told at the beginning with the monk telling me, pray for the gift of forgiveness, is um, <coughs> the only piece of advice... And particularly just 
Going to the safeguarding question, I think is extremely pertinent. I, as a prison chaplain, work with sex offenders. Some of them say to me, can I ever be forgiven? <laughs> Occasionally, on the other end of the scale, I find <coughs> church safeguarders wildly overreacting to some possible rumour. Nothing has happened. And where is the forgiveness going? This is a minefield of difficulty. <coughs> and I think the only thing I'd say, um, apart from praying when they should is share your concerns with others who are often much wiser than you and more experienced than you as what might be done in this particular safeguarding case or whatever it is. And so sharing with fellow Christians uh, in an attempt to find wisdom and praying for it anyway. Mm. Thank you. And Tim? Well, I think, uh, so first of all, forgiveness is not a feeling. Um, and uh, John Stott writes about, you know, when it comes to praying, we may not feel like it. And he says, pray until you pray. Um, so forgive until you forgive. Yes. Uh, and, and so the, you, you can, in practice, forgive, even if it takes you forever to actually feel like you've forgiven somebody for whatever that might be. And however hard we think forgiving people is, it's not as hard as being forgiven. Um, because that is to accept the crushing reality that you are wrong and have done wrong. And, and so the, I mean, it's, it's hardly advice in my personal experience, but it is just what the Bible tells us, to accept the kingdom like a little child. And that means just understanding unquestioningly um, and without resistance the awesome forgiveness that is available. And, and so re- remind yourself, whilst, whilst you may be angry at other people's injustice, and sometimes you're right to be, just go back every day to your own wretchedness and what it costs the Son of God for you to be forgiven. You know, if you're, if the Son of God had to die on the cross, um, my sins must be really flipping serious. Mm. And, and if I've been forgiven that, who am I to withhold mm. forgiveness from others, even if I don't feel like it? That's a great note to end on. Uh, friends, our time has run out. An hour goes very quickly. It does uh, this side, anyway. Um, I would like, uh, on your behalf, to thank our distinguished panel, Tim Farron, MP, Baroness Philippa Stroud, Jonathan Aitken, and Mark Green. I've certainly found the conversation life-giving, enlightening, challenging, and encouraging, but... As we conclude and as we leave this place, let us carry with us the lessons and the insights that have been gained from this conversation. May we be inspired to embody forgiveness in our daily lives and work, recognising its power absolutely to heal wounds, to restore relationships, to foster a society rooted in grace and reconciliation, that would change the world, wouldn't it? That would be transformative. On behalf of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, thank you so much for choosing to join this seminar um, amongst all the other options that you had. We hope that you'll stay connected with us. Um, You might even get another chocolate on your way out. Um, Enjoy the book. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.